Oh, amen. You know, this past week, I've just kind of been some reflecting back over the last four years and, and how the years in themselves have been amazing. It seems in one sense like we just got over here a few months ago, and it seems like another like we've been here forever. It just is so natural and so normal. Tonight at the uh, fellowship dinner, which is our Thanksgiving celebration and our covenant celebration, I I'm going to share a little bit with you about the future. Uh, you know, here we are four years and, and looking at now building a permanent home, and that's all coming together, and I'll share with you a bit about that and some other things about the future. So I hope you'll be here tonight at, or be at the Christian school tonight. I keep saying here, not here, at the Christian school as we celebrate that time together. It will be very special. Take your Bibles and turn with me, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. We have finished 10 chapters of this book, and we have moved fairly quickly through them. You may not think it was all that quickly, but I think we've only had 34, 35 sermons in that. I don't know why this is doing that. Is it this? It's not touching me. I'm not letting it touch me. Okay, all right. I forbid it to. Okay. Uh, anyway, uh, 34, 35 weeks are messages to get to the 11th chapter. Uh, and and that that's, may seem like a long time to you. To me, it seemed very quickly to get to this point, but at this point we are. And I want us to look at what the writer begins to do here in this section. It is a dramatic change. For the first 10 chapters, all the writer has wanted to talk about are two things. One, the superiority and the greatness of Jesus Christ. And secondly, the superiority and the greatness of the new covenant that was based upon his coming and based upon the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It has been Christ is superior, the new covenant is superior, Christ is reigning, the new covenant is in effect, the old has become obsolete. I mean, that's all he has talked about for 10 chapters, the greatness of Christ and the greatness of the new covenant. And quite honestly, that's some tremendous uh, discussion points. I can almost imagine as those Hebrew readers who were either hearing this sermon or reading this sermon, were listening and he just constantly dwelt on the greatness of Jesus, the greatness of the new covenant. These Hebrew, these Jewish believers who had been raised up in the old covenant, who had been raised up under Judaism, I can almost imagine him saying, now wait a minute. Uh, that's understandable that Christ came and it's understandable that the new covenant has been established. But what about Moses? What about Abraham? What about Abel? What about, and he went, they could have gone on and on about all of those Old Testament saints who they know live godly lives, who they know walked with God, who they know had an experience of a relationship with the living God, Yahweh. That They were not just some kind of religious charlatans out there playing games. They were following the obedience of Yahweh. And so they had to ask the question, well, what about them? Are we going to see Moses in heaven? Are we going to see Abraham in heaven? Are we going to be there with those dear saints who observed the law as best they could, who offered the sacrifices on a faithful manner, who believed in Yahweh, who followed Yahweh, who 
had some struggles from time to time, no doubt, but, but who sought sincerely to follow after the word of God? Are, are we going to see them? Or are they excluded? And so the writer takes this 11th chapter. Go to this. Through it very meticulously and very carefully to show what is the reality of the Old Testament saints, what, where, where they are, what, is go, what went on in their life, and why they are secure in God, why they have the same security that we have in the New Covenant. It was not because they were perfect. It was not because they were uh, not disobedient, just like we all are. It's not because they didn't struggle in life, just like we do. But it was because they had one thing in common with you and me. And that common factor is faith. It wasn't their works. It wasn't their good deeds. It wasn't that they were able to keep the law, because no man can or ever could. But it was because they looked forward in faith to what God had promised through Abraham and through Moses and through all the prophets and throughout all of the Old Testament, they look forward to the coming of Messiah and his sacrifice. When they offered the lamb, they were looking forward to the, to the real lamb of God, the true lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who would come and be a sacrifice on their behalf. Their whole walk was a walk of faith, just like our whole walk has to be a walk of faith. Hear what the writer says just in these first three verses. We won't get into any of the characters really to speak of today, but I want you to hear what he says, how he introduces this whole concept of the triumphs of faith. Now, some have called this chapter the Hall of Fame of Faith. Some have called it the Superstars of Faith. I mean, there are all sorts of names this has been given, but it's merely just a, a, a listing and a demonstrating of how faith triumphs over evil, how faith triumphs over evil. Uh, all things, and leads a person to God. Listen to these first three verses. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. Hear that. By faith the men of old, Moses, Abraham, uh, all of those, by, by, by it, by faith, the men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Now we'll stop there because basically what he's wanting his readers to understand and what he wants basically you and me to understand is just simply what is faith. Before he tells about Abel, before he tells about Enoch, before he tells about Noah and Abraham and Sarah and all the others, he wants them to understand what faith is. There's a lot of crazy definitions in our world about what faith is today. And there are a lot of crazy definitions in their world about what faith was. To many people today, faith is some kind of, of an abstract just denial of reality and just saying, I'll just believe whatever I want to believe, and as long as I have faith in something, then, then everything's all right. Some say today that as long as you have faith in some religion, then that's okay. It doesn't matter what religion, doesn't matter what you believe about it, as long as you have some kind of faith. But generally, and a lot of times, that turns out being nothing more than faith in faith, which is empty and vacuous and, and has no meaning whatsoever. 
What, what the writer here is talking about is having faith, putting trust in the right object. Having faith and putting trust in the right person. Having faith and putting trust in that which is real and that which is true, not something that is simply wishful thinking. So he says in verse 1 that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not yet seen. In a word, you could say that what he's saying is that faith is certitude. It's certitude. Certitude being a dynamic certainty about what God has promised. Certitude in the fact that God's word is true. God's word will never fail. God's word will never let us down in any way. There is this understanding, there is this certitude, there is this believing, this assurance of things hoped for. And hope there, we realize, doesn't mean just, oh man, I hope this happens. But it's things that we're longing for, things that we are desiring based on what God has said. And it's a conviction of things not seen. Faith is not a feeling. I used to say faith was not primarily a feeling, but I, I, wanna, I, I really have come to believe that faith is not a feeling at all. Now, faith may produce some feelings, but faith may bring about a great joy in your life. Faith may bring about a, a great experience with the living God to you that will bring about some kind of experience, but faith is not feeling. And, and if you're depending on a feeling to come in order for you to have faith, then you're going to miss the boat altogether. Faith is not feelings. Faith is not optimism or, or something like the power of positive thinking. Those things are just faith in faith. Those things are just faith in nothing. They're just faith for the sake of faith. And, and those have no power at all. Faith is not that. Faith, and true faith is neither brainless nor a, sentimental or a sentimentality. Uh, faith is not any of that. But faith is a solid conviction resting on God's word that makes the future present and the invisible seen. Faith is placing your trust in something. And, you know, there's the old illustration. I mean, and I, could, I could use it. If I had my wireless mic, I'd be a little more animated with it to keep all these uh, young folks awake that were up till 3 o'clock or 4 o'clock this morning, but I, I can't do it because God has taken away my wireless mic. But, but if I could, I would use the old illustration of the chair. You've heard that. Here's a chair. I can stand all day and look at that chair and say, you know, I believe that chair will hold me up if I sit in it. I believe that chair is strong enough. I believe that chair is sturdy. I believe that chair is, is, uh, is everything it makes itself out to be. And if I were to sit down in that chair... I really believe I would be secure and I would be safe to sit in it. And I could say that day in and day out, week in and week out, month in and month out, and year in and year out, and just looking at that chair saying, I really believe that chair could, uh, could, could, uh, could hold me up. And I would never have expressed faith in the chair. I would feel like I'd feel good about the chair. I'd think, oh, that chair's nice. But it wouldn't be, would not be until I put myself in that chair, sat down on that chair, that I would come to realize what faith is, resting in the object that you believe in. That's why James could say, oh, you believe in God? <laughs> Great, so do the demons in hell. And they, they shudder at that, but they don't have saving faith. Because they know God is real, they know God is there, they believe that, but they cannot put their faith in him, they cannot put their trust in him, and so they fear him, they shudder in him, but it is of no avail. You might say, oh, I, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. 
I believe that Jesus is not a liar or a lunatic or, or, or trying to deceive people. I believe that everything he said about himself, he, he, he knew to be true. And when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me, I believe that is a reality. I believe that is a truth. But you can say that all day. And until you put yourself in absolute trust upon him, absolute dependence upon him, that is not faith. It's belief in a shallow sense, but it's not faith in the reality of what Christ is and what Christ can do. Faith is certitude. Faith is certainty. Faith is conviction. That what God has promised in the future will be a reality and, and that, that, the, the, that everything he has said that is out there, even though we can't see it, is true. It's walking in light of what he has said. That's the character of faith. But, but faith is also, the writer says here, active. If you look at verse 2, he says, For by it the men of old gained approval. That is, it was active in their life. It, it works itself out in a life. When you express faith in Jesus Christ, when you know faith in Jesus Christ, it's not just some kind of thing you sit back on and say, oh, well, I now have believed in Jesus Christ. I have faith. He is the only begotten Son of God. He is the, he is the Messiah. He is the superior to all the prophets. He is, he is God in the flesh. And I'm safe in that. And that's all that matters. No, it begins to work itself out. You saw Moses' faith by taking up the, the, the challenge to deliver the people, God's people from slavery and bondage. You saw Abel's faith that we'll look at next week because he was willing to offer a better sacrifice. God had given the directions for a sacrifice and Abel obeyed him. You, you saw Moses' faith. Uh, excuse me, I already said Moses. You saw Noah's faith. When God said, build an ark, and boy, we're going to see some really interesting things about old Noah when we come to looking at him in a few weeks. But you saw Noah's faith. He built an ark out in the middle of nowhere, no water in sight, and he said, it's going to rain, it's going to flood, and we're going to be secure. And people laughed at him, but he said, I know what God has promised, and I'm staking my life on what God has said is true. It works itself out in your life so that others can see it and others can understand it. One of my favorite examples of it, and they're not mentioned uh, directly in this chapter, but they're kind of alluded to, I think, in, in chapter 33, uh, verses 33 and 34, when it says, you know, they shut the mouths of lions and quenched the power of fire. But so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You remember them? Over in Daniel's prophecy, they were there living in the land, living in exile from, from Israel, and King Nebuchadnezzar came before the people and said, all people will bow down and worship me. Built a, a, a beautiful idol. And he said, now you bow down. Everybody has to do it. Everybody, no exceptions. And, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to Nebuchadnezzar and said, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning the matter after asking if they were going to do it. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. 
Now that's faith. That's trust. That's believing in such a way that it's working itself out. It's demonstrating itself in these young men's lives. Bow down and worship this golden image. Bow down and worship false gods. We're, we're called to do that. We're challenged to do that every day, folks. In our culture, idols abound. And idols abound in your lives and my life. And we're challenged to bow down before them, whether it's the idol of entertainment or the idol of pleasure or, or the idol of money or the idol of, of possessions or, or whatever it might be. Any number of idols call us and scream at us to turn away from the living God and bow down before them. And sadly, many do it. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, I am not, we are not going to do that. So they threw them in the fire. The blazing fire. The fire that no one could even get near the pit. It was so hot for, for it would singe their hair and they would feel the, the fury of the fire. Now there's no evidence. There's no evidence at all that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had ever seen the direct manifestation of God in the visible. There's no, no indication anywhere in Scripture that would lead us to believe that they had seen God walking around on the earth and, and, and seen him do these miraculous things, but they did see him by faith. And they believed that he was a God of truth. And so they obeyed him rather than Nebuchadnezzar. A little later on, you find in that same chapter in Daniel... It says, after they started the fire, if they threw them in there, it said, Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded and stood up in haste and said to his high officials, Was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? And they replied to the king, Certainly, O king, it was three. He said, Look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. The manifestation of a pre-incarnate manifestation, no doubt, of Christ protecting those who were his. Faith is not something that you just hoard up. Faith is not something that you just intellectually ascend to. Faith is something that works itself out. It is activistic in your life. It changes you. And faith leads to obedience of what God has called you to do and called you to be. And then he gives a little bit of faith's understanding in verse 3. He says, By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible referring back to the whole concept of Genesis chapter 1 which said in the beginning was the word uh, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth I went to John 1 1 in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and, and the earth was void without form and and there was nothing there and God said let there be light and God said let there be matter and God said let there be this and that and this and it all came into being not out of stuff that God found somewhere and pulled together and kind of shaped but God spoke it into existence the theological term is ex nihilo out of nothing he brought forth the worlds and it's by faith that we understand that I wasn't there you weren't there Nobody was there when it took place 
to write it down and say, hey, I saw God just say, boom, let there be light, and there was light. There's nobody there, only him. But he brought it about. And it's by faith now that we believe that all the stars in the sky and all the things that he has created were prepared, that is created, by the word of God, made out of nothing except his command and his voice. That means all, I believe the latest thing is 10 oxillion stars that are out there. That's 10 with 27 zeros after it. Uh, that, that those were all spoken into existence by the power of God. I mean, I realize some people look at that and say, well, that, that could never be. I mean, that just can't happen. It's got to be for billions of years, things breaking up and parting and, and separating and, and you know, colliding together and making a noise and all this kind of stuff. It all takes place just through this, this uh, unbelievable metaphysical uh, evolutionary thing that happened over millions of years. I love what, I love scientists, I love to read scientists, real scientists, who come to faith in Christ and continue to pursue their science. Men like Dr., I've mentioned him before, Dr. Henry Schaefer, Fritz Schaefer at, at the University of Georgia, who is a quantum chemist, which I have no idea what that means, what quantum chemist means. I know what chemistry is, but when you put quantum in front of it, I'm lost. But I know he's been nominated five times for the Nobel, P, uh, Nobel Prize in Science. Uh, he's, he's been nominated for all sorts of prestigious awards. He's considered one of the greatest scientists in American history, and he's still alive, still a fairly young man, getting younger every year. I think he's two years older than I am. But he's, uh, I mean, he's, he's brilliant. And he believes that God created out of nothing that he spoke into existence and somebody asked him one time in a in a science symposium said how can you believe that why why you're a scientist don't you see all that's out there he said oh, I do see all that's out there and what I've come to learn is God has given me the privilege of just kind of observing all that he has done and showing his power and showing his grace he uses his faith and science to discover how God has done all that he's done. And he does that all to the praise of the glory of God. Kind of reminds me of a story I heard oh, years ago. A story about the, the piano mice. You ever heard about the piano mice, Beth or Judy? Never heard about the piano mice? And you call yourselves, oh, anyway. <laughs> Seems there were these mice that lived in a rather large piano at one time, and, and music just filled you know, their piano world, filling it with happiness and harmony and sound, and, and the mice were impressed by it. And the mice knew that somewhere out there, somewhere, they couldn't see them, couldn't see him but, or her, but somewhere there was a great piano player that was making all that music, but they never saw that person. So one day... Uh, a mouse, a mouse, singular, was very daring, and he climbed up the piano, and he returned very thoughtful. And he began to tell the people that he had found how the music was made. Wires were up there, and they were stretched tightly in graduated links, and they trembled and they vibrated. And when they trembled and they vibrated, 
music came out of them. So there was really no grand piano player, no master piano player. It was simply a, uh, the wires that made the sound. And they started talking about how they must revise all their old beliefs. And you know what? None but the most conservative would continue to believe that there was a grand piano player. It was the wires. A little later on, a, another mouse decided to carry the exploration even further. And, and when he got a little further, he found that hammers were now the secret. It wasn't just the wires, it was hammers. And somehow along the way, the wires and the hammers got together and these great numbers of hammers were dancing and leaping on the wires. And this made the theory even more complicated. How did they get the wires and the hammers there? But they were there, and, and so that was how the music went. And so it just proved that they lived in a purely mechanical and purely mathematical world. The unseen player came to be thought of as a myth. But the pianist continued to play. Isn't that a lot like our world today? Isn't that a lot of like, in the old times we believed in God, we believed, sure, God's there, God created, but then we discovered DNA, and that had to be the answer, you know, or we discovered, uh, we discovered some similarities between species. Now, we've not seen anything leap across species in the last 2,000 years or so, but, but, but we, we heard about that, and there's these similarities, and so if a monkey and a man are similar in so many ways, surely one evolved, I'm wondering... I'm still not sure we're not devolving from humans into monkeys, but that's, that's a theory I'll espouse later. But, you know, the whole idea of all these things come to light that just, there's the answer, there's the reason. And for many people, God becomes a myth. But God just keeps on playing the music. God just keeps on sustaining the world. God just keeps on watching over God just keeps on doing what he does in saving and bringing men and women to faith in Christ. God just keeps on working. He, he's not at all stymied by the mouse or the mice that we are. You know, faith is, is not... It's not feeling, it's not sentimentality, it's not denying the reality, it's not denying the truth. It's believing that what God has said is true, and it's basing our life on it. When Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the Father but by me, he meant that. And our world thinks, well, as long as, as, long as you just take the first part, that's all right. Don't. Don't add that second part, though. No man comes to the Father by me because that's very narrow. That's very limited. That's, that's saying that Christianity and Christ are better than all the other religions. And, and, and as I told the ladies' Bible study last week, it, it, it does mean that because, you see, the reality is it is better because their founder is dead. Our founder's alive. That's better. That's reality. That's truth. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I've never seen God. I've never even seen Jesus Christ. But I have a deep conviction that they are true and they are real. 
and I know that they have changed my life and they have given me faith and that faith is working itself out in a multitude of ways. Faith is sitting down and believing completely and trusting without reservation in the one who has the power to create, to sustain, and to redeem. Where is your trust? Where is your faith? Well, we're going to look at how that worked itself out in all these Old Testament characters. I mean, a multitude of them. And then in chapter 12, he's going to come right back to, but Jesus is the epitome of all that. But he wants them to see, and he wants us to see, that the Old Testament saints were saved in the same way that you and I are, by faith in the Messiah. Them looking forward, us looking back. We've got a benefit over them. We've got it a lot easier because we see his work, we see his truth, we see his miracles, we see his power. But all of that's brought together by the ministry of his Holy Spirit, applying that to our lives by his grace. Let's pray. Father, we have come around your table and we have fellowshiped in this meal, this bread and this fruit of the vine. And we have remembered your death and your burial and your resurrection. And we remember it again and again until you come again. And we, we anticipate that coming with great joy, with faith. Father, we take that and we drink of it, not as just acts of physical eating and drinking, but we do it with faith, believing that you have given yourself in our place, our substitute and our sacrifice that rips away the veil that we might enter into the presence of the living and the true God. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit will Enlighten, open eyes, open hearts of all of us, even we who have believed already, that we might see the glory of Christ. Father, I pray for men and women here who don't know you. I pray right now that your Holy Spirit will begin a work of conviction and a work of enlightening in their lives. And I pray for believers here, Lord, who, who waver in their faith and, and that you just need to bring assurance and conviction to in a mighty way. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.